one of the great movies, if you've ever seen these, these you know, list of the top movies of all time, somewhere near the top always is the film Citizen Kane. And of course, it's over 80 years old now, so there may be a good number of us who've never seen it. But this, was, this is a film that has, that has stood the test of time. Orson Welles wrote it, produced it, directed, starred in it. It was, it was really, in so many ways, a one-man show. But Orson Welles plays this, this character named Charles Foster Kane who in his youth was an orphan, but who was, who was then adopted into a very wealthy family. He had a, a very happy, simple life initially, but he comes into this wealthy family and now everything's different for him. He becomes exceedingly wealthy, the heir of this fortune. Everybody knows his name. He's always in the public and the spotlight. Uh, he ends up running for political office. He's a really, really big deal, Charles Foster Kane. But of course, that was part of his problem, is that we see over the course of the film that his pride is what becomes his downfall. This is a man who wrecks all of his relationships, and eventually, wealthy though he was, famous though he was, Charles Foster Kane dies alone. And in the most famous scene of the movie, the film actually opens with this scene, he utters his final words. He says, Rosebud, and then he drops a snow globe, which shatters on the ground. Now, you, you have to watch the film to really understand all the symbolism of that, but the long and the short of it is, this is a person who, despite all of his fame and fortune and ambition and success, he was, in the end, he was left with nothing but sorrow and regret. In his own mind, he died a failure. Now, y'all, as we finish John chapter 19 today, we, we get to look into the final moments of Jesus' life and ministry as he dies on the cross. And if we're honest, I mean, if we're looking at this only by the naked eye, it would appear that Jesus dies a failure and that his enemies have won. I mean, we, we recall on Palm Sunday, right, that Jesus has entered into Jerusalem with great fanfare. Everybody seems to know him and everybody seems to love him. They welcome him in with their palm branches. Kids, hold up your palm branches. They welcomed him in and they were so glad that he'd come. But now, just a few days later, Jesus is essentially alone. Only a handful of people are there at the foot of the cross. Most of them are women. They're the only ones willing to stand by him as he's raised up to die as a criminal. And so at least from the perspective of the Jewish leaders, the men who hated him so ruthlessly, this is the shame that Jesus deserves. He's finally got what's coming to him. And they mock him. We see this in other accounts that are given in the Gospels. Where are the crowds that once adored you? Right? Where's, where's the rescuing hand of the Heavenly Father you claim sent you here? Where is he? It would seem right here that the ministry of Jesus, which at one time was so large, so promising and vibrant, that in the end it's now come to nothing. Jesus is going to die alone, a failure. But y'all, even here in the death of Jesus, and we'll see also in his burial, the gracious hand of God is working powerfully. And we get to witness today, not a failure, but a fulfillment, a true fulfillment of all of God's grace and power and promise. And so y'all look with me here at John 19, beginning in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. 
a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, Jesus, if we've read through the Gospel of John before, we, we know multiple times throughout the Gospel, Jesus has said, I have come to accomplish the works of my Father. I've come to accomplish the work that the Father has given me to do. And we've understood then what this great work is. The great work of God is for the Son to come and suffer for sin, to die as an atoning sacrifice for us, for sinners, to bear away the sin of the world. That was John the Baptist's language back in chapter 3. So that we might not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the great work Jesus came to accomplish. And so Jesus, who is very near death in this moment, he knows that all things have been accomplished. He's doing it in this present moment. There's nothing left undone. There's nothing that he's got to come down from the cross to accomplish now. It's being done right before our eyes. All the, the, the loose ends are tied together here. And so as we, we talked about this at length last week, that here on the cross, Jesus is accomplishing God's justice for sin and God's mercy for sinners. It's all being fulfilled. And knowing this, John says, Jesus spoke a word. He said, I thirst. I'm thirsty. Now, at a very purely physical level, we can understand that Jesus would be thirsty. Okay? We can imagine that, that after being tortured for hours, then nailed to a cross, then hung out to die in the Middle Eastern sun, of course Jesus is thirsty. And in fact, the thirst was part of the torture. It was part of the punishment that the Romans inflicted. That There on the cross, severe dehydration sets in, which leads to severe muscle spasms. And of course, you have no way of resolving the pain. You're simply there to suffer what your thirst has produced. Right? But John gives us a little note here, and he does this often. We see it so often in this gospel. John tells us that Jesus spoke these words to fulfill the Scripture. Not just to communicate something physically true, but to fulfill the Bible. Now, the words, I am thirsty, it's hard for us to find a direct correlation. There are several places in the Psalms where we can point to I am thirsty in one way or another. But I, I think Jesus is, is probably reaching back to Psalm 69 at this point. Because there's a place in Psalm 69... Uh, verse 20, here's the context. It says, Reproach has broken my heart, and I'm so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, this is what sour wine was. It was a cheap form of wine vinegar that the Roman soldiers would drink. And so they're going to give Jesus this, this vinegar, this sour wine. But y'all, if, if John wants to make clear that there's a scripture fulfillment in the, that phrase, then my sense is there's probably a deeper meaning beyond the physical thirst. Yes, Jesus is thirsty physically, but y'all, connect the dots here with me. This is the same Jesus 
who only perhaps months prior got up in front of the crowds and said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and I will give you the water of life. Come to me and drink. It was Jesus who said, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst again. And so we consider perhaps some irony in this that we've got the one who offers the water of life to the world is in this moment himself dying in thirst. But y'all, this is what it cost Jesus to give the living water. It cost him his own life. It cost him his own thirst. Y'all, Jesus didn't come to earth simply to dispense spiritual blessings to us, to give us a better life or even a better spiritual uh, track to follow. No, Jesus came for the ultimate purpose of giving himself. Jesus gives himself in our place. And so right here on the cross, we understand that Jesus is suffering the full penalty of God's justice for sin. Jesus is taking on the full force of the darkness that separates humanity from God. He is drying up in a way that we cannot possibly comprehend. He's being poured out for our sake. And so this is the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus is accomplishing God's great work. And it's because he thirsts on the cross and dies in his thirst that we're able to come to him and never thirst again. It's because he has died in our place that we may have life and living water. This is the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus Christ in our place, dying in thirst so that he might give the water of life. And so they take a sponge, John tells us. They soak it in sour wine, and they let him wet his mouth with it. And then in verse 30, we just read it, we'll see it again. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, remember, Jesus said prior to this in John, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. And here we see it, even in Jesus' last moment. He's finished his work. He gives up his spirit. No one has taken it from him. But y'all, I really want to give special attention to his final words. We, we often will make a big deal out of celebrities or great men or women. What were their final words? Maybe we'll take some some inspiration uh, from them. Well, nobody had a greater last word than this, what we just read. Jesus, with his final breath, says, it is finished. And y'all, that's not for our inspiration. These are words that will echo through eternity as our only hope, as our true joy, as our very identifying grace. Because y'all, for Jesus to declare it is finished, that means truly everything the Father sent the Son to accomplish is fulfilled, is done. Jesus is the perfect man who has fulfilled the law and all righteousness. Jesus is the perfect Son who has obeyed and now glorified His Father entirely. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice who has atoned for every sin, every sin, 
Jesus is the perfect Savior who has now met every single condition to reconcile us to God. And so when we hear it is finished, we can rest secure. If you, if you by faith in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted him for his mercy, it is finished is the most glorious phrase to your ears. Because what it means for you and me is that there are no contributions to be made. There's nothing for you to produce or bring to the table that God requires now. No gaps to fill in, no work left undone. When Jesus says it is finished, that means we simply receive his finished work, which is his grace upon grace upon grace. So many of us, if you're like me, you wake up every morning thinking, surely there's something I have to do today to either earn or at least maintain God's love and favor in my life. I'm always teetering on the edge of losing what I've received. And nothing could be further from the truth because it is finished. The work of Christ needs no maintenance. It's done. It's perfect. It's ours. Yo, I want to just highlight for a moment something the Apostle Paul said about this, about what happened at the cross and how it relates to you and me. This is this incredible scripture from Colossians chapter 2. Let's just let's marvel at this together here for just a moment. This is what we were. Here's what God has done. Colossians 2.13. Paul says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, God, made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Jesus. Now, through, through the cross of Christ... We are, Paul says, we are made alive together with Christ. By faith, we have life in his name because God has nailed our sins to the cross. God has taken our debt, and as it were, he put it on the cross with Jesus so that when the nails were driven through his own hands and feet, our sins were nailed there together with him. Y'all, I, there, there may not, for me, there may not be a more powerful image in the entire Bible than that one. And it's something that we have to take to heart here, just how heavy, just how weighty, and how wonderful this promise is. You tell, I, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to think of my own life. I know I'm a sinner, but I, you know, I feel like you, you could probably write all of my sins down like on a CVS receipt, because those are pretty long, right? You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm a sinner. You could, you could fit them all on there, right? Well, the truth about me, it would take a library, at the least, to record my sin. Not just the external, but especially the stuff in my own heart, the stuff you've never seen, and I hope you never find out. And you're that way too. We're not fooling ourselves. Our sin is a library of rebellion against God and the indulgence of the sins of the flesh and of the mind. And we could go on and on all day revealing the, the truth about ourselves, right? We were dead in sin. 
the scripture says. But through Jesus, God has taken the whole library, the whole list, no matter how long, no matter how bad, and he's nailed it to the cross. So that when Jesus dies, and we watch it take place, when he died, your sin debt died with him. And therefore, all is forgiven, paid in full. The scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. Their sins and their lawless deeds, God says, I remember no more. And this, Paul says, is a public mockery of Satan and his demons. And I love that he includes this there in Colossians 2. The cross is not the victory of the Jewish leaders or the Roman government, and certainly it's not Satan's victory. It's actually God's triumph over them all. Because here, y'all, the one thing Satan could do, theoretically, is show you your sin and bring your sin as a charge against you in the court of God, right? And we would have no argument. The book has been thrown at me, and I've done everything in the book, right? But nothing the devil could say against you, no charge brought against you, can stick. Because by faith in Jesus, you have been completely forgiven, justified. The debt has been canceled because his blood has been shed for you. That's good news. That's good news. Now, y'all, as we read through John's gospel here, Jesus has breathed his last. It is finished, he cried. But there's something that's yet to come that's, that's significant to us. If it were me, and I was trying to just give the essential details, let's talk about the death and let's just get to the resurrection, right? Let's, you know, it's, been, it's, it's, it's hard. It's dark. Let's get to the good stuff. But John's not finished, and we shouldn't be either, because what comes after this is so central to our understanding of how, not only how Jesus died, but then what took place between his death and his resurrection. There was a burial that took place. And John doesn't tell us all the details that, that, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us. You know, that the veil was torn into, the earth shook, things like that. But John does give us some information that the others don't. We see this in verse 31. And y'all, this is, a, you know, this is hard to read. But uh, this is what happened. Verse 31, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with Jesus. Now, just a quick note here, y'all. To break the legs of a crucified man was to speed up his death. It would, it would expedite the process so that he might die quicker. Now, normally they wouldn't do that. They would just leave these men to die slowly and as painfully as possible. But the Sabbath day is approaching, and the Jews are concerned that if these men remain up on the cross, it's going to desecrate the Sabbath. It's going to uh, bring a curse upon them and the land. And so we've got to hurry this thing up so that we can get these men's bodies in the ground. But then verse 33, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, 
so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. John makes a big issue out of this blood and water spilling out of, of Jesus' side. And y'all, this, this is a physiological phenomenon. It's certainly uh, possible if you want to Google and read an article about it or, or send me a text if you're interested. I'll send you a good article on this. We're not going to spend a lot of time trying to prove that blood and water could come out at the same time. Here's what John's adamant about. Not just that it happened, but that he was there and he saw it. You see what he says? He who has seen has testified. His testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. John, is. this is a real sticking point for him. I was there. I saw the blood and water come forth. And y'all, probably what's happening in John's case is he's combating any notion in the early church that Jesus was really just a spirit who kind of hovered along with us for spiritual blessing and, and instruction, he didn't really become one of us. Or maybe Jesus on the cross, maybe he was a real person, but he just, he swooned on the cross. This is a popular theory that people had. He passed out from blood loss. He didn't really die. And later, after some people attended to his needs, he revived and continued to live on. John says, no, I was there. I saw it. When they rammed that spear up under his ribcage, I saw the blood and water flow. There was no flinching on Jesus' part. There was no crying out. He was dead. He was really dead. And all of this, of course, happened to fulfill the Scripture so that you may believe. John's goal here is to show us what really happened so that we may look upon the real crucified Jesus and trust that his death was the payment for sin. And y'all, that's, that's really um, worked out in the final piece of this scripture. John wants us who are reading to see this and believe, right? Now we actually get to see in real time the outcome of those who saw and believed. And this is a, this is a real nice surprise right here, what happens at the end of John 19. Look at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Why does John give us these details? It's important, of course, that Jesus was buried, and buried in a tomb because he's going to rise from the tomb. The tomb will be empty. We little sneak peek for next Sunday, right? But really, our focus in this moment ought to be on these two men. Who are these two guys that, that spring up in this, this horrible moment and care for the body of Christ? Two men 
One, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, he shows up in all four Gospels. Matthew and Mark tell us that he was a rich man. But more important than that, he was on the Sanhedrin. He was on the council of Jewish leaders, 70 men who were the most significant ruling court of the day there in Jerusalem. And despite the fact that Joseph was in the Sanhedrin, he was a follower of Jesus. Now, John tells us that until this moment, he was following Jesus in secret for fear of the Jews. Y'all, the Sanhedrin, of course, this is the ruling council upon which Caiaphas, the high priest, set. They were the ones that so hated Jesus and continued to conspire against him to try to put him to death. They were in full-scale rejection of Christ. Joseph was not in rejection. He's a follower of Christ, but he sits among these men. And so he was, you know, he's working this balancing act this whole time. But now here at the end, Joseph puts himself out there. He sees to the proper care and burial of Jesus' body. Y'all, this is something that could not have been kept secret. Joseph is, is revealing his true colors now to the whole world, and it would have been a great scandal. This man that we thought was with us was, in fact, with Jesus all along, right? And so Joseph, is put, he's sticking his neck out there to do this. To bury Jesus in, in uh, I mean, you know, typically criminals who were crucified were brought down from the cross and thrown into a mass grave in the Valley of Henna. It was just a place where, where they were discarded as trash. But here Jesus is cared for. Joseph treats him as, he were, as if he were a member of his own family. He loved him. And then we have a second man. John tells us Nicodemus. Now this one's ought to, ought to really tickle our ears. When we hear the name Nicodemus, my goodness, John chapter 3, which at Harvest Church, this was over a year ago. <laughs> this was last March that we looked at John chapter 3. But Nicodemus, he was the Jewish leader, the teacher, who came to Jesus by night in secret to try to figure Jesus out. This is the man to whom Jesus said, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And if we remember, Nicodemus left that conversation completely mystified. He was dumbfounded. He left seemingly unconvinced that night. But y'all, here he is on Good Friday, helping his friend Joseph care for and bury the Lord. He brings almost 100 pounds of spices with him. Y'all, that's an exorbitant amount. That's enough for a royal funeral. And just as it was for Joseph, this is, this is a scandal. Nicodemus is, he's outing himself here. Everybody would have seen and known what was taking place there on Good Friday. Both of these men, they're at risk now of being expelled from the synagogue, of being blacklisted from all religious life and practice. That's what's on the table for them. And so while John doesn't tell us this explicitly, y'all, I just have to believe that at this point, Nicodemus had himself become a follower of Jesus. He had been born again. And he's showing it forth and how he loves him in his death. And y'all, as we close, it's just a, to me, it's such a wonderful point that we need to make right here in this. When we see what these two men are doing, two men who had a lot to lose, two men who had a great reputation to uphold, and they're, in a sense, spoiling it for Jesus' sake here. Y'all, when we read through the Gospels, so often we see Jesus relating to and welcoming and forgiving the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the people who were way down low on the social and the moral ladder. 
And we say, isn't that wonderful? Because people like that, they really need lots of mercy and grace. And I'll read accounts like that, and I'll, and I'll subliminally, maybe, I don't say it out loud, but I just, I hold myself up in a different category. I'm not like them. But y'all, if we've read through the Gospel of John, we've seen this. The, it was the religious leaders all throughout the Gospel who were the ones really most in need of God's grace and truth and mercy and forgiveness. But unlike the people who were low down on the ladder, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they knew what they needed. They knew they were no good. They knew they needed someone to forgive their sins. It was the religious people who so often were cold toward Jesus, even hateful and spiteful, because they saw themselves as above repentance and grace. And so his word to them was received hard and cold. They hated him for it. How dare you tell me I need to repent? And yet here we have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two men who would have been lumped together in that religious leader circle who would have risen up and puffed out their chest potentially when they were exposed to the sin in their heart. But they've come to realize they needed the very same grace that the tax collectors needed. And the grace that Jesus came to offer was now theirs. No longer cold toward the one whom God had sent, but their hearts were warmed. They had received him. They loved him. And here's my point for us. Every single person in this room needs the very same grace, all of us. Every person outside these doors going about their business in this present moment needs the very same grace. You may be very proud of your reputation, or you may be deeply ashamed of it. And it makes no difference at all when we speak of the cross. Because we come to the cross at level ground. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single human being, whether very religious and good, at least externally, or agnostic and, and a mess. Whatever, I mean, you, you fill in the blank anywhere in between. Our need for God's mercy is universal. It's all the same. And y'all, that's what makes the good news so very good, is that the power of God's grace really can save anyone. God's grace is able to save any single person, the very good or the very bad, the thief next to Jesus on the cross. And the same grace that saved him saves Nicodemus. And now, Nicodemus and this nameless man who died next to Christ are together in heaven, speaking forth the same words of worship and joy. And so will we, by faith in him. Y'all, when Jesus bleeds out on the cross with his dying breath, if, he, if, if being good, buttoned up, nice religious people, if that was God's goal for us, then Jesus' final words would have been, do better, try harder, make me proud. But they weren't. Jesus said, it is finished. And therefore, we bring our sin to him, and we declare what the scripture declares, nailed to the cross fully forgiven, entirely free, because he loved us enough to spread out his arms for us.
and to die that we might live. Let's praise him and thank him for his grace. Father, this morning, I pray, Father, that you would, you would help us to see this and, Lord, to let, it, to let it really sink in deeply. I pray this from my own heart. For Jesus to say, it is finished. Lord, I pray you'd let those, those words echo. Let them sink in. That, Lord, in all my desire to be good, or to be good enough, or at least to try to keep a balance on the scales. Lord, in all my desire to climb the ladder and, and for others to think well of me, in all my desire, Lord, to ignore my sin or pretend it away. Father Jesus Christ, with arms open, has taken it all. It is finished. Father, would you help us Lord, to look to him with, with just supreme trust and faith this morning. Just to put all of our weight on him for the forgiveness of our sins, Lord. To bring rest and comfort and hope to our souls. And Lord, to propel us now to a life of, of just absolute faithfulness and devotion because our Savior has loved us and given himself entirely for us. Father, if you will, if you will help us this morning, um, Lord, to, to see ourselves the way you see us, not as nice people that you kind of dust off Sunday to Sunday. No, as forgiven sinners, children of God, by grace, completely righteous in your eyes now we are because it is finished by the grace of Jesus. Lord, I pray that, um, that whether we're, we're very religious and proud perhaps or very low down and ashamed, that we all come to the cross the same way and look to Jesus as our only hope. And Lord, as we, as we enter into Holy Week and we consider what's to come, Good Friday and, or the Last Supper and certainly on Easter Sunday, what, what, what is ahead of us, Lord, that we would just, we would marvel at Jesus Christ. Every single thing he did, he did, Lord, to accomplish the work you gave him, the salvation of sinners. And we're welcomed in because you've loved us that much. Lord, let, us, let this week for us be a week of rejoicing and sharing. That we would share this grace that we've been so lavishly given. Because, Lord, you have the power to save anybody. From the very top down to the very bottom. All of us, Lord, may look to Jesus and be saved. And we thank you in his awesome and holy name. Amen.